I was just, I was, I'm just going to kick this off, right? So, so the this is our first episode that we're doing um, of this podcast, and what we probably should do is talk a little bit about who we are and 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 how we how we ended up um, decided to do a podcast. But let's start a little bit about who we are. Um, so why don't why don't you go first? Why don't you tell um, why don't you tell everyone how you um, how you got into programming and how how um, you ended up where you are today? Sure. Um, I go by Ecton Online. Um, I uh, currently am working on Bonsai DB as my main project, which is a document-based database uh, written in pure Rust. Um, and uh, it's been uh, uh, something that I kicked off as a goal of writing a game uh, when I quit my job a few years ago. Um, I got into programming when uh, my mom... Uh, identified me as a potential student to uh, be tutored by uh, a local college professor that was looking for kids that were interested in uh, computers potentially. And he taught me basic. Um, And that kind of started me on the path of knowing that I could master these computers and, and and make them my own. Um, And then since my mom was a teacher, she'd often have me in her uh, classroom at the, after school on weekends and I'd be on the computers playing. Um, But my version of playing was messing around with something called hypercard, which actually is a full programming language. And I was like making games and stuff in grade school. Um, So that was kind of the kickoff for me. um, And I kind of never looked back. So would you, would you, would you be able to write anything in hypercard today? No, absolutely not. Um, I have looked at the uh, the language. It's called HyperTalk um, because I I still have this like nostalgia from from those days and thinking about how you know what would it be like if we had a hypercard today? You know, could could we bring something like it to the web? That's been one of my thoughts over the past few years, and I keep thinking that honestly, it's probably mostly nostalgia. You know, it's a it was a program that never really made the transition to color. There were technically a couple of versions that kind of supported color at the end, but like if you actually wanted color, you had to make native calls into quick draw which is always fun um you know so yeah i i don't think that it's uh it would be a good language to use today maybe not it, it is i mean i don't know it's it, it's it, so like what was the what was the selling points of hypercard i've never programmed hypercard i don't know even know what it looks like so the the idea was that you had a stack of cards and on each card you could uh, visually lay out uh, like labels and buttons and uh, and shapes and images and all those types of things. So, you you know, it had a, a very large calling in the educational community because you could build like stacks of note cards that talked through a subject, but they were interactive because you could have buttons that took you to different cards. They could play sounds, you know, they could animate things. And it's all driven by this uh, English looking language that you know had like uh, it kind of looked a little bit like apple script in ways which uh, people may not be very familiar with but you would do things like on repeat uh, to do loops and stuff like that um i mean it's honestly been so long i could be misremembering that particular aspect um but yeah, the, the draw was that it was installed on every Mac back in the day. Um, and so you could uh, just open it up and start working with it as one of the built-in com- programs. So let me see if I got this right. You have this visual layout thing in cards, and then you have control flow and all this logic that you can attach to these cards, right? Mm-hmm. You could literally double-click on a button in the editor and start uh, co- writing code that happens when you, uh, when you click on the button. This, this, this is clearly the predecessor to Unreal Engine, right? You're describing blueprints. Exactly. And this is, exactly. How, it, this yep. is how Unreal Engine started. Someone, someone didn't agree with how these works, right? With how, how the hypercard worked and, and said, I, I said the hypercard. I'm like an old person talking about the internet. I guess I'm an old <laughs> person now, right? Um, which means I can use that as a segue to talk a little bit about myself, right? 
Um, yeah. I, I, I go by Togglebit um, and, and not on GitHub because someone else had that. So I'm toggled by it there. I'm guessing there's like eight of me. But um, I do I do streaming a lot on Twitch um, and I do programming in Rust. And my journey into programming is very similar to yours, right? I, I learned to program on, on an ancient computer, on, on an IBM 286, right? Um, mm. in, in basic, uh, and uh, you kind of had to, you know, if you, if you know basic, you have to type out line numbers and all that. And, and to this day, I think it takes a particular kind of skill to write basic because you kind of have to figure out how many line numbers am I going to need to insert between these two line numbers, right? It was just why I remember it was a common practice. Exactly. Sorry, you were about to say it. Go ahead. Oh, yes, exactly. So you start like you're going to 10, do something, 20, do something. So every instruction set, is like you, or every, every time you write some instructions, you're leaving yourself a bit, like 10, 10 mistakes. I can make 10 exactly. mistakes in here, right? Um, so that's, that's basic, right? Um, and I then, I then sort of segued into, into Pascal. Um, and I never, never got into C. I tried to learn C, right? Um, but uh, but my brother's friend, who was who was pretty good at C, right? Um, he was sort of we were, we were part of this, this computer club, right? Because that's that's when you when you're a teenager, that's where you go to meet girls, right? And um, <laughs> he he sort of got so fed up with my ineptitude that he actually yelled at me, and I felt so bad that I just sort of gave up on 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 this thing. I was like, okay, I'm never gonna program C. I have programmed C after I started learning Rust, but. But as a, as, a, as a youth, I never really got into I never really got into C. Right? There was there was uh, like no. I just I just moved away from the whole thing. It was from from Pascal into into Delphi for a bit, and and uh, I think I did like PHP, ASP, and then ASP.NET, this C sharp, and a bunch of other things. But but mm-hmm. uh, yeah yeah. So that's like that's kind of like my journey into into programming, right? So it's the it's it's the so I guess with these classical we started programming when we were very young, right? And I always feel like you're supposed to live up to something, right? I mean, I run into people who say, like, I'm in my 20s, is it too late to start programming? And in my, my mind explodes from the question, like, how how is it too late to do anything? And especially programming, like, there's people who've been programming for, for five years, and they can out-program me in certain fields, right? Um so anyway, sorry, I just went off on a tangent there. My my No, I, it was it was great. Sorry um, about that. No, I was um, I think the the only things I really relate with is uh bouncing off of C as well. Um you know, I grew up in a really small town in uh in Kansas um and uh that meant that I didn't actually have I, I was the computer guy basically and there weren't older people that knew programming that I was learning from. Um you know, uh I after that little bit of intro to basic, I was self-taught by reading books um and you know, I remember I don't know when I was 12 or 13, my mom took us into a mall uh close uh, you know, in a city it was 90 miles away, small town, Kansas, gotta love it. Um, and I picked up a book that was like, learn, learn C programming for the Mac. I can't find it. I tried as an adult one day um, mm-hmm. to, to see if I could find the book out of nostalgia. And it taught you how to make a joust style game um, using quick draw on the Mac and the Mac OS 7.5 days um, using C. Um, and I remember getting to the chapter where it was trying to teach me pointers and I just kept trying and trying to understand it and I just couldn't. And I eventually gave up, um, you know, cause I just didn't have anyone to ask. Um, and then later in life, um, I was using another language called real basic at the time. I think it goes by Zojo these days. Um, and they had a way to make system calls directly from the basic 
style language. Um, and you would, you know, declare the external function passing in the parameters. And sometimes you'd have to put in these memory block addresses instead. And that's when I finally learned how to actually construct memory in a way that made sense when I had memory, you know, addresses pointing to addresses of memory, like the handle type such, such setups. That stuff was always breaking my brain when I was trying to learn it, you know, in the earlier days. But once I had this framework of a kind of a, a language that was safer to work in, that I could then, you know, poke into these, you know, individual operating system calls and learn how they work that way, I finally understood pointers. So that when I did encounter C in my professional life later, it wasn't a, as big of a deal. Uh, I never programmed C as a, for, for anything more than just exploring, uh, you know, fun things. But um, my when I when I when I started programming Rust, that's when I got more of an interest in C because of, of, of what you speak of the pointers, right? Because we have, mm -hmm. I mean, you have you know you know this, right? We have references in in, in Rust and we have rule pointers and um, rule pointers and unsafe in, and unsafe in Rust is this kind of it's a little bit of a um, like you don't learn about this when you read the book, right? There's, they're not going to go into sort of rule pointers and you have the Rust Nomicon and they're like oh rule pointers and and like. You know, here be dragons kind of thing, um, but it's not it's not too bad, right? It's not too bad until you get to like the multiple levels of indirection. That's when it starts to fall apart, and that's what I, that's what I like about Rust, though, because you have you have a reference to something. You if you have a reference to a reference, you never need a reference to a reference, right? Have you ever needed a reference to a reference? Su surprisingly, yes, um, but it's because of traits. Um, so I don't know how much of a tangent you want to go in, but no, yes, in general, but, but you don't have to worry about this stuff I am, in Rust. I am shocked. <laughs> I'm shocked that this, like, but because I, it has never happened to me, right? I'm, so this has never, this, this has, it's so never happened to me before. Implementing, uh, implementing something like partial ord or partial comp of a uh, custom type against stir, um, you find situations in your code where your string slice is actually being passed into the comparison um, as a uh, reference to a string slice reference. And so you end up with the two ampersands on that particular thing. So when you go to implement um, partial comp, unless you want to force your users to deref that um, that extra reference, uh, you actually implement a partial comp for both just the stir directly as well as uh, a you know ampersand stir uh, to give you this the string slice reference implementation so you get both of them interesting i have never i have never really thought about that i never i've never i've, I've clearly never implemented partial or comp but or partial technically i'm not sitting there creating those things it's just a it's an effect of how you're using you know comparisons uh, in in the language that generates the extra reference that the compiler is like, hey, this is an implemented for this type, but that's why you implement for the the comparison for the pointer type on on the string slice as well. I'm using all sorts of bad terminology. I apologize to all the newer Rust users out there. <laughs> that's all right. I think this is, I am going to unload a whole bunch of bad terminology. So I think that's this is this, that's what this what? podcast podcast will be. We learn Rust, and uh, we we don't uh, we don't pretend to be experts. Um, and we're happy to be corrected and learn how things actually are, um, you know, by digging in. I, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to say, after all the conversations we've had outside of this podcast, I'm, I'm going I'm to inject some confusion. I love the name Bad Terminology. That would have been a great podcast name as well. But oh, that would have been. <laughs> but I like what we got so far, right? I, like I could buy so another far. domain name. <laughs> I was, I was going to say, you know what? I'm intentionally not saying the name of the podcast in case something happens. 
if we need to change the name again. So, of course, um, why I'm saying change the name again, this is, we don't have to go into the depths of this thing, right? But we all know the whole trademark thing that's happening. And since we're starting this out, we thought it might be best to stay clear of using the name rust and cargo etc in there so i think i think we're we're we have a, we have a great uh, name now i think we have a wonderful name so we're gonna we're gonna stick uh, to that. let's but just it, say we had a great name before too uh but unfortunately uh it became gray area material with the last draft um so we decided to just come up with a new name so that domain really name is gonna did, go to yeah. go, go to the waste <laughs> yes absolutely but i think i think either way either way it's, it's good so i'm going to i'm gonna try to segue us into talking about what we're trying to do but before we get there yeah. one thing that i think is rather important that we haven't really discussed and i don't know if i have ever talked about this with you in the past um and that is how did you get into rust in the first place yeah, um, I don't remember specifically, um, but I have always felt that um, like when I hired um, people, uh, so I, before I quit my job, um, I ran that company. I was one of the three founders. Um, and so I, I grew up my team from me being the original guy who wrote the iOS, Android and, you know, web platforms to, uh, you know, managing a team of, I think, like o slightly over 20 people. It's not, not a huge company, but for me, that was a big accomplishment growing from not being a manager at all to, uh, you know, managing that large of a team by the end of it and people mostly enjoying it i hope um you know uh but uh you know towards the end of that uh sorry uh, my philosophy of hiring was that um someone who can demonstrate that they like learning things is almost always one of the best hires and that's because my philosophy was that i love learning and uh you know for someone who likes learning you give them a, a challenging problem and they'll probably excel at it right you know obviously you don't want to give them hard deadlines and stuff but anyways um so i was constantly always just learning new things i would hear about new languages nim is another one that's pretty popular you know and um uh, but i never actually played with that one rust is what piqued my interest because um through all the years of programming i, sl I slowly started feeling that functional programming was uh kind of what i felt like the, the best approach was because it made it easy to test things and a bunch of other stuff that i just felt like was good um and rust uh, came in and was like, Hey, um, you know, we're going to start, pr you know, guaranteeing memory safety, uh, as kind of an extra level here. Um, but I, I realized that their type system was so expressive that it looked like it, it wasn't going to feel as low level as I thought it was going to be right. Like when you write C or even C plus plus, there's still a lot of manual stuff you have to worry about. Otherwise you're going to have a really bad day, but here came rust and like, Hey, the compiler's got your back. Um, and so, you know, I, I really liked that idea. I tried it out for a little small tool at my previous company um, that uh, just to optimize a, it was a little, you know, cloud formation tool for Amazon Web Services that just helped me write a CI, uh, a continuous integration tool slightly better. Um, and that was a fun little experiment. I really, I ran into the borrow checker issues, um, you know, and like, and I didn't really understand what I was doing because. Unlike most people, I, I don't I don't read the book. I told you guys I read read books as a kid, but um, these days I don't read these books. Instead, I just try, and I you know once I run into a brick wall, that's when I finally go start reading. Um, and so I, I I did get my that particular task done, and I was still like excited by the language, but I also didn't really fully understand like what it was truly like because it was such a small tool. 
So when I fast forward to me quitting my job, I just kind of felt like Rust seemed like it was on an uh, you know an upswing, um, and it still seemed like a good thing to invest in. Um, if I couldn't actually build a game that was successful um, by the time that my runway runs out, um, I figured that at least I would still be in a good st- uh, you know good uh, career position for having learned Rust. So that was my motivation for starting getting into it three and a half years ago, um, and uh, you know I've. Loved Loved it ever since. It's been a wonderful experience. Um, what about you? Oh, I wish my I wish my Rust origin story was as fascinating as yours. I, I have I have. It didn't uh, sound that fascinating to me. I hope you, it was you, for you're someone. Starting <laughs> off with this, you you build your business empire and then you kind of just wasn't walk an empire. away to do Rust. Okay, but well, this is the, 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 this, this is the romantic version <laughs> of Hachita. Sure. So, but no, but I think that sounds absolutely fantastic, right? Then you kind of go like, okay, I want to try this language and it ticks all the boxes and, and, and like you, you're, you're thinking about this from like a career perspective. My Rust origin story was I was sitting in the backseat of a car going through Spain with a crying baby in the backseat with an, with an iPad mini. This was, this was sort of when the iPad mini was, was new. And um, I, I love was that form there, factor trying to read the Rust book, the original book. And it was, the, the original book talks about, it, it kind of just dove straight into the dining philosopher's problem, right? So if you, if you, if you, I think you know what this is, but for those of you who don't know what it is, it's a, it's a sort of an experiment in, in con, um, uh, concurrency, in, in, in locking, sorry. Uh, so you, you basically have uh, a bunch of people who for some reason they, they use two forks to eat spaghetti and that's how a mutex is involved. Um, but I, I, I recommend anyone to go and look up the dining philosopher's problem instead of taking this version of that. But the, the point is that you can end up in deadlocks and, and, and all these things. Um, but I was sitting there in the backseat trying to read this thing and, uh, and I, was, I was making a choice. Am I going to learn Erlang, Haskell and Rust? Or Rust, sorry, there was no end in there. It was just Erlang, Haskell or Rust. Um, and I didn't really know anything about these programming languages, right? I didn't even know why I picked Rust. It was just, it just had something available. It was new, right? And I didn't, I, I didn't read about the amazing memory safety or anything like that. But rather, this is like a, here's the next programming language. There's no garbage, garbage collector, right? So... You just, you just, you know, you run this on whatever you want. And I thought, you know, in the end, this sounds, this sounds pretty good. But I actually gave up on Rust twice before I stuck with it. And I thought... Really? Yes. I thought I was programming Rust. And this is, I'm going to say this to everyone out there who wants to learn Rust, but you, 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 you thought about it, you tried it, and you kind of, you threw it out the window in frustration. I quit twice, and I have never felt so stupid trying to learn Rust as I have any other programming language. Because I I had a little bit of a misconception. I thought that the programming language should work the way I think it should work, not the way it actually works, which <laughs> doesn't help. Um, so I thought, Rust, why are you being stupid? Let me do this, right? And 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 um, I had a lot of these like preconceived notions for how a programming language should work. So I thought, and obviously I've been a developer since, since people programmed BASIC, right? Um, so clearly I must be a competent developer and it's the language that's rubbish, right? So I had like a very, a very, um, hubris kind of perspective. I thought I can learn any language, right? And, and that kind of thing. Right? Um, and, and I couldn't write in the beginning and I got really frustrated. And when I finally managed to write something in Rust, the performance was awful. I wrote a program that was supposed to replace some Python code and the Python code was faster. 
That's how bad my first Rust program was. So if you're out there and you're thinking about, I'm going to learn Rust, or you're trying to learn Rust and you're frustrated and you feel like you're not as smart as you thought you were, right? I want you to know that you're not alone, okay? You're, you're not alone. I, I was not as smart as I thought I was, right? It was humbling to learn Rust for me. Same here. Um, as, as much as I want to say that the Rust compiler errors are amazing, they are. But when you run into certain issues, um, and back when I was learning a couple years ago, a few years ago, they were worse. Like the compiler errors have gotten way better, especially around certain borrowing conditions, right? Um, they're much more descriptive as to what you might be able to do to solve problems now than they were several years ago. Um, but what my philosophy was, this is why I wanted to bring it up, was I was coming from Ruby and C Sharp a little bit, but but in those languages, so much everything is what they call boxed, which means that everything, like every value is already a distinct allocated piece of memory. And so uh, there's a lot of times where you don't even realize how much overhead you have in these dynamic languages um, because you're generating a bunch of little tiny allocations because of these things, you know, being stored in their own little chunks of memory, like little in integers even being boxed all the time for certain languages. Um, and so uh, when I switched to Rust, and I would run into borrow checker issues sometimes, I would get rid of them with clones sometimes, you know, and those, you know, that's an extra allocation. But coming from the Ruby world or coming from the whatever world, um, a lot of the times there's so much of those things happening all the time anyways that I knew that in this one particular location, it's like, eh, whatever, Rust is still going to be, you know, significantly faster because of all the other bits. I don't care if I have a clone here. Nowadays, though, now that I'm way more familiar with the language, um, I've, I've spent a lot more time getting to understand the parts that I didn't know. So like part of what I wanted to bring up here is that if you do struggle with kind of learning the borrow checker, um, sometimes it's okay to just hack your way through by, you know, cloning something or putting it in an arc or an RC or something like that, um, you know, to just just get around the issue temporarily and then come back to it later, right? Like uh, to optimize away that extra allocation or whatever, if you need to, you know, a lot of times you really don't. Um, you know, I, f I find it weird how much I focus on every single allocation in Rust sometimes because it makes it easy for that to be something that you think about like whereas in other languages like i would you know that'd be one of the last things i would think about because i'd be focused on all the other errors that the language wasn't helping me stop myself from making <laughs> yeah i think you're 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 very much uh, head on the nail with that one right i think this is very common i remember the early days of rust i used to hang out on the irc server right the the the, the free node before that was bought up by some private players <laughs> i think um and and I used to hang out there in the Rust Beginners channel, and I and I spent I, I, w I was spending years in that channel. I think uh, for some reason I felt like I'm never going to graduate from Rust Beginners, but um, it was it was a, it was a nice channel. The guy who wrote Rocket used to hang out uh, there, mm. and, and he helped me with so many things. Um, so I don't know if if he if he if ever if he ever listens to this thing right is a, a, a thank you for helping me on IRC. You have no idea who I am. You probably don't remember anything. Even if I told you my my username, you wouldn't remember me. But but I was I'm very grateful that he took the time and helped me a lot. Right? He he even he even explained the basics on how to build a database and talking about memmap and all sorts of interesting things um, with me. Right? Um, it is a wonderful community. Um, but uh, but also as part of that, there was this kind of weird stigma against box and string. So I kind of, for lack of a better phrase, I grew up in Rust 
thinking that boxing was bad because it was quote unquote expensive and it was bad to create a bunch of strings because you're allocating memory and all these things. But I think when you're starting out your Rust journey, before, if you can't say why is it expensive to box this thing, then I don't think you should worry about it. If you can't identify when or how or why it is expensive, then I would say don't worry about it until you build your yep. mental model. But that, that kind of wraps this, where it kind of become obvious that we have this like massive uh, piece of hot cold running and, and like we're doing allocations all the time. And, and this is now slow. I can see that in my benchmarks. But before you're there, I don't think you should worry about it. And like you said, um, RC and ARC can, can solve your lifetime issues, right? If you're struggling to grab uh, sorry, grep is, is not the right. So it's trying to understand <laughs> lifetimes. Then, then, then just use RC and ARC until you do. It, it's perfectly fine, right? I mean, technically, um, taking a clone of an RC is just incrementing a number somewhere for for mm -hmm. for better or for worse. Right? It is an unsafe self wrapping a number, as far as I remember. And all you do is use use mutate the number, right? Um, and that's it. Um, so yes, so that that's you know that's that's journeys journeys into Rust, right? Uh, should we talk a little bit about what we're trying to do, right? How do we how yeah. do we end up here, right? Why are we doing why well, are we doing a podcast, right? We 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 ended up here uh, partly from you reaching out to me one day saying how you would like a change of scenery of sorts, and uh, we hadn't really talked too much. Like you knew that. I had this long-term goal of making a game, but you also knew that I was making the database as my primary thing. Um, and, uh, you know, we just, we, we chatted a lot. And one day you hit me up and we're like, hey, you know, like I, I really could use a new idea so, so I can uh, get into a, a lifestyle that I'm a little more happy with, um, you know, because uh, various work stuff you were just struggling with at the time. Um, and, uh, and so we started chatting and um, it turns out that both you and I had kind of a vague notion of an MMO slash mud like community type game of some sort that we both kind of were interested in making. And uh, the idea at the time was that maybe we could uh, build an engine that we could still build both of our own games, but I'm still holding out hope that we can actually uh, come up with a, a full game concept that both of us are, are enthusiastic about and can pursue together. Um, but I still agree with you that the, uh, a good starting place is that, um, you know, a game engine that uh, is open source that everyone can build on um, that kind of takes care of, uh, a lot of the details of what you might need for a, a game engine uh, for a, for a multiplayer game um, without dictating exactly how your game works. If that, and we'll get into details of that in the future. Um, but in part of that discussion, you know, it's all about, you know, how can we sustain ourselves, right? I've got a limited runway uh, eventually, and you're going to, you're going to be working from a similar situation. And so, uh, you know, how can we potentially create this in a way to get support such that we could turn this into our full-time jobs eventually? And I've seen a bunch of successful uh, game developers uh, have nice little podcasts. Uh, I'll go ahead and plug one of the ones that I really love. Uh, uh, the, it's a... Uh, Buttershot Scotch Shenanigans uh, put out a coffee with butterscotch um, or be scotch um, uh, podcast that uh, I listen to very regularly. And um, 
I support them through that. And I've only bought one of their games. <laughs> and so I know there are people out there that like listening to the journey of game development. Um, and specifically, I don't think there's too many uh, Rust podcasts out there either. And so I thought this would be a way to, uh, you know, eventually people can support the game itself. Um, but, you know, sometime it's in the near future, we'll get uh, some sort of Patreon-like service set up for, for us here uh, on the podcast as well. And it'll all just work towards this vision of building this community project um, that, you know, we both are kind of passionate about. And hopefully uh, that'll allow us to extend our runways long enough to actually ship something. And, and the, and the, 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 the Oh wow! Sorry, I I I I had like five uh, different things I wanted to inject there, and I just tripped. I all went over on myself. for a long time. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's fine. I just like can we just, can we just cut that part out where I just got. Uh, but all, all, all right, you know. Um. Okay. Yes. Yeah, so, so so that is that is it. Like that is what we're trying to do. We like many other people out there decide that that we want to make a game. And you know what's kind of ridiculous, right? I. Uh, I've been wanting to make games since I was a child, right? I played games. I played. I played the classics. Uh, I, I played uh, console games. I play. I had like Nintendos and Segas and, and the whole thing, right? I still have a bunch of consoles. Um, I do a bit of gaming these days as much as I can. Um, and um, the thing is, I always want to to make a game, but for some reason, I never did. I when I started getting to the working life, I sort of just slipped into this. A web development area, right? Writing a bunch of PHP mm-hmm. back in the '90s and and the likes, and and it sort of like it, it sort of became this thing where I thought, okay, I'm not terrible at this. Why don't I do this for a little bit, right? And um, and I did, and then, and then I kind of just lost track of this thing, right? But then I sort of woke up one day realizing that despite popular beliefs, you're not getting any younger and you don't get a do-over, right? So this is like, I'm getting, we're getting very real and heavy here, but this is it, right? Like I got to do something. If I want to make a game, if I still have that childhood dream of making a game, I can't just sit around and wait, wait for that. I got to do something, right? And then this is kind of like, so this is where I've landed. Now you as a responsible adult have what you call a runway. I have a gravel path. Which is, you know, not <laughs> quite the same. So, so my my runway is not quite the, uh, as extensive as you. I did not, I did not successfully build uh, a company. I I am now on my second company, but I have built no product with this company. Right, I do kind of do consulting and and all that, and I have until very recently been doing consulting work in in Rust, right and. And then I feel like now uh, I am. I want to do something that I'm more passionate about. Right? I want to do something that that I feel like this is this is what I want to invest a little bit more than just my time. I want to invest a little bit of my soul into this thing. Right? I want to do something. And, yeah. And and it is not clear to me the vision. Right? I don't have a clear vision. So we kind of have we have a common uh, we have a lot of common ground to stand on. Right? And I'm, and I, like you say, I hope that we will grow this this vision this shared vision out of it and if we if we do that's amazing and that's going to make things a lot easier if not we're going to have this game engine that we can build our ideas because i think our ideas are very similar right? um 
We, yeah, and I and I think the the other part too is that the game engine shouldn't be just for our games. Um, it's going to be something that I hope a lot of people in the community uh, who want to make uh, you know games in a similar fashion to the types that we're describing, which I would say are, are you know multi-user dungeon buds from the classic days, um, or kind of older school MMOs that have a, a, a bit more of a generous tick system, um, or or something similar to Eve Online's tick system. Um, and I know that tick systems for a lot of people may not mean anything so i'll just briefly say that some games process their servers actually most games do um in uh, discrete time units that they call as ticks um and so like that's kind of the the type of detail that i don't necessarily want people to have to think too much about when they go and make their game they should just be able to focus on okay what what needs to happen on a regular basis and um the storage and the networking and stuff hopefully can be kind of just transparent to a lot of users which would be really cool and powerful and, and on, on that note, you mentioned networking, right? And I think this is something that that we both feel very strongly about. We like the idea that your game is also a community. It's, it's a social experience, right? Your, your game is more than, uh, you know, just, you know, whatever flavor of the month FPS Battle Royale is out there, right? Your, your game should be... Um, or rather, I would like a game that actually connects people in in in, in this in these vast worlds, right? So we have a very strong focus on networking, right? And authentication and all this account management stuff, and eventually we'll want to have moderation tools and stuff all built into this core platform, so that you know uh, it's easy to create the admin tools you need to manage a game that you've built. Exactly right. So, so we kind of so you have your standard game engines like you have Godot, you have uh, or Godot if some some say. But the thing is, the guy who's running the Godot project always pronounces Godot, and I feel like it's his project or like he's the spokesperson. So I, I I always say Godot. Sir, are, I you understand. A, are you a GIF or a GIF guy? Oh no, I'm a GIF. Right, I'm, I'm definitely. Oh, I'm, see, see, now you're going against your own philosophy there. You know, the project I, yeah, I creator do, of, of, no, of GIF. Uh, I, I I don't know anything. Thing about this guy who created the the, uh, the 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 GIF format, right? So so I did, but uh, you know, on that note, I mean, I think this is like this is how we're gonna get. I didn't like, mean to get us too much on a tan- <laughs> on too, too much of a rabbit I hole. I think but. this is how we're gonna get get into 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 camps, right? Because I also say car instead of char, and I think that we're gonna have uh. half the listeners are now sharpening the pitchforks, right? So are you a char or a car guy? I say char, um, but I don't bat an eye when someone says car. See, now, there, but there, there we go. Then you take the other half of the listeners. Then whether 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 rage against me, they can be on your side with that. No, I um, mean, so from that standpoint, I'll, I will just defend the cars out of the out of the gate. Is that uh, character? You don't say character, right? So that's that's why I think that that is actually a better way to say it. My brain just always says char. So yeah, I think it's it's because we read it as char, right? In, in, in like because it's actually a verb, a char you know, time. to char something, you know, yeah, like. I don't know. Like, that's actually a, a real word. Like, you know, if you burn something, it's charred, you know? Um, this, this is so, so, like every time we get those, we get those, those characters on screen. We can, <laughs> we can think about how they are burning into the old CRT monitors of yore if you left yeah. them on for too long. So your car became a char. Um, but but it is so there is there is that so you have your you have your uh, Godot you have Unity you have uh, you have uh, Unreal Engine and these are the big uh, engines out there today that most people 
No, even if you're not a game developer, you've heard of one of these engines, right? I mean, if you're a programmer, I know that if I ask my wife which one she prefers, she will just leave the room as per usual. So I don't think that's, you know, it's not that ubiquitous in the world, but but most people know, right? Um, but we're, ta- we're taking a different approach because these engines are very focused on giving you this kind of drop into a 3D world that you're working from. But we're kind of almost starting more from a, code and networking perspective even though you know not saying we're never going to have an editor but we're kind of starting off from a slightly different perspective if we're not we're not doing multiplayer as an afterthought here right actually i would go a step further and say that even though i'm calling this game engine it's not really a game engine it's a game engine in the loosest sense because when you think game engines you think graphics but this thing right now has no graphics and i don't know if it ever will because i think that one of the the powerful parts is that uh you can in theory plug this into whatever rendering system you want um and that this mostly is just about helping you figure out where the data types are you know being defined where they get stored to disk where they come across the network you know gives you kind of a structure to the code um, but you can in theory use it with whatever graphic system because this kind of segues into a little bit of what we've been working on i'm not sure if you're ready for that yet or not but you and i both have user interface projects and they're drastically different um we and do, so it and might be kind are. of fun to chat a little bit about that um, let's, because let's ultimately talk. that's one of the reasons why this engine doesn't have any graphics is because you and i have slightly different uh uh i don't know we both we both appreciate the the ability to play a game in a browser but your user interface framework is a TUI framework, a, a terminal one. Um, and I am sitting here wanting to potentially reboot my user interface framework, which is a, you know, web and desktop um, framework. Um, so yeah, I don't know. How about you intro a little bit? What, uh, what got you into your TUI project? Why did you start it? And uh, kind of what have you been doing with it recently? I well, I I'd love to talk about this, and I'd love to remember how I ended up where I am. But the, it's getting a little bit fussy at this point, right? Do you do you have a project you work on, and you kind of you sort of ask yourself, how did I end up here? Why am I doing this again? And you're kind of like, you're well, less, less I mean, stressed. I start. I'm writing a database after having started trying to write a game. So yes, <laughs> I, I have I have experienced that exact thought before. <laughs> It it is the case when you work on something. So so what I what I did, I started for some reason, I don't remember. I, I did this as a as an interface to my stream. So this uh, so I, I do I mentioned this in the beginning. I do a lot of streaming on Twitch and I see all these other streamers. They have this uh, amazing overlays and they have like people subscribe and these amazing like events occur on screen and everything. Um and I can't do any of that, but I run i3 as my desktop management. Sorry, as my window manager, right? Not desktop environment. Uh, so, so yeah, so I run i3, which already looks like a bunch of overlays. Everything's already organized. So I just wrote my, I did all this stuff in the terminals then. So I had the notifications and everything uh, in, in the terminal, but I didn't like how that was working. And this was, I was doing this with the early version of what is today 2ERS, right? Um, I, I say what is today, I don't think it ever changed name, but it's 2ERS if you, if you want to look it up. And this thing didn't really do layout the same way that I wanted to do layout, right? And you had sort of the, the draw thing happen in this closure as well, right? Now you could obviously work around that, but but it happens in the closure. 
um, with the, with the handle and and all that. So I thought, okay, you know what? Why don't we do this a little bit different, right? So I grabbed CrossTerm, which is a fantastic cross-platform uh, terminal uh, drawing or or interaction library. Like we do more than drawing. You have events handling, and you have all these things. Right? So CrossTerm is amazing, and. Uh, and I, and I started using that, and I thought this thing is a little bit bare bones, right? At least two yards gave us a layout, even though it wasn't layout the way I wanted it. So, so the cross term gives us nothing. So I thought I'd build a bit of layout on this thing. And I actually built this like it was supposed to be almost like a, a terminal-based game engine. And that was like a, that wasn't a serious project, but I started off with having a camera and a viewport and you could track characters and you could even had world coordinates and everything like that, which is definitely not what you need when you're building a user interface. Um, and uh, I, built, I built that and it had some performance issues. It wasn't very good. So I threw that out and I built something based on N-curses and... Some of you out there who know about anchors, maybe you took a deep breath. <gasps> what is 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 that still a thing, right? And now, of course, <laughs> it's, it's still a thing. Like it's a battle-tested library that is giving you errors if you try to write to the bottom right uh, character on the screen, right? It is. It has been around for ages, right? This thing has been around and it's very fast. It's very optimized. It was a lot more performant than what I did with cross terms. So when I tried to use end curses, I got the performance that I didn't have, but I didn't have, I still didn't have a good layout. And end curses does something pretty funky when it comes to colors. It treats all colors as pass. And that didn't really fit my mental model. So I ended up, I, I think I'm like on the fourth or fifth version of writing this library. And now I've, I've finally settled on what I want to do, right, with this thing. I've, I've finally settled on the this this final rewrite, which is now able to, to draw in the terminal, and it has a very basic template language. So you are able to build your applications and ship them with a template. So when someone when someone gets your application. And if they want to change the way it's laid out and how it looks, they can do so by just modifying this file, which I feel takes it one step further than what we have with a lot of uh, terminal applications today. They all have a config file. It's not it's not a, the same format. They have a config file. You have to read about how to change it and all that. And I want this kind of unification of that a little bit. I want to be able to, to say, okay, we have a simple language we have a simple language and we have like a simple template. Uh, we have variables and very, very basic things in there like control flow and for loops. And and that's that's it. Right? So I'm going off on a bit of a tangent here talking about this thing, right? But but so that's kind of that's kind of what I I'm not necessarily um feeling like this has to be the final uh product for the final interface for a game. But I do think that it would be really fun as a throwback to 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 have that exist in the mix in some way or another, right? But uh, I agree with you that the web is is probably uh, a better place to start in terms of of um, reach uh, like, you know reaching your target audience, right? Um so so tell me tell me I what what well, in before I hmm. I actually uh, want to say that I I I am I find the um idea of having a terminal interface to whatever MMO I make um, being a romantic idea. So I actually really like the idea that you might have a TUI client for the game that we make together, right? Like I actually am not opposed to the idea that we end up with two different clients at the end of the day. Um, I think so that yeah, would be it, interesting. Yeah. 
It would. I mean, obviously that's extra work. And so that's the, that's the reason why I would hedge against it, given that you said you have a, uh, I think you said gravel path to work with. Um, so, <laughs> minimizing the total amount of effort uh, to get something uh, shipping is probably uh, a better thing to do. Um, but, uh, you know, I mean, a lot of the, the same philosophies uh, I feel like you have are kind of what inspired me to, I mean, so why have I been looking at making a GUI framework again, uh, a graphical user interface framework again? So uh, when I started making a game uh, in Rust, uh, you know, three and a half years ago, um, uh, the state of GUI then was even worse than it is right now, as you might imagine. Um, uh, all, several frameworks that exist today didn't even exist. I don't think 60 FPS slash slint um, existed back then. Um, or if it did, it was so unknown that people weren't even aware of it. Um, and I went through several different uh you know rendering engines before i eventually built my own that i called cludgeon which is a, a, a blend of the word kludge and uh engine uh, which is what uh i was hoping would uh be an indicator for people to not necessarily use it because i'm new to <laughs> graphics programming um but uh i started building a user interface framework directly inclusion at the time um and uh it was uh, that fall i had just some personal stuff i lost my dog and like you know i i um kind of just in a in a reset that next year i uh decided to dump it all um and then i met this really great friend um that his name will come up many times over the podcast dex peta um who uh basically joined my discord one day and was like hey, I'd love to potentially contribute. And uh, we started chatting for hours on end every day. And he's who ended up inspiring me to create Bonsai. But as part of that process too, like our whole idea is that this is Rust. We should be able to have the best of the best. Uh, and and for us, when we wanted to target both web and desktop, to, to us, we don't want to have the full DOM experience on the desktop. There's a lot of good stuff that you get for that. You get a lot of accessibility and stuff. But to us we want to build the support for native accessibility directly into something that's pure rust from the get go. Like our vision is full stacks that potentially could run on unikernels written in rust. So you have rust all the way down turtles all the way down. Right. Um, and so why wouldn't we want that for our user interface framework? And to me, when I looked at the landscape and when I still look at the landscape today, which is why I was experimenting with this idea again, the last week, um, there's no frameworks out there that are actively trying to target uh, being able to create full custom cross-platform widgets um, in uh, a way that can target the web such that they're actual DOM elements. So you actually get accessibility in the browser, um, you know, and all the other benefits you get from being, you know, actually rendered as and not inside of just a canvas, which most frameworks do. Um, but then also when you run natively, you get some rasterized version. And why did I say rasterized version? Well, it's because I want to make a game. And so I know that I'm still going to be drawing graphics at some core level. And so to me, it makes sense that when I run natively, um, I'm running directly on the GPU as much as possible. Um, and, you know, you can do that in the browser, but that's a lot harder to pull off. Um, and, you know, often you end up using Canvas with a GL context or whatever. So, um, so yeah, I've been uh, wanting to potentially revisit uh, my current framework it's called gooey um spelled like a gooey cinnamon roll g-o-e-y um you could find it um on github pretty easily uh consu labs slash gooey um but currently it's written in a way that's just very similar to kind of a 
a traditional architecture. And that means that there's a lot of arc mutexes under the hood and, or RW locks in some cases. Um, but uh, there's issues where when you need to update the counter in one location to talk to another widget, you know, you have to like lock widgets and stuff and it's just not fun. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, uh, one of our mutual friends, uh, uh, Roland, um, has, uh, recently been playing around with Leptos, uh, L E P T O S, which is a wonderful web framework. that's fairly new, um, that uses a reactive model, which allows you to essentially just like give like these little ch- snippets of code that execute whenever events fire to some extent um, it's a gross oversimplification but that's at the end of the day what makes it different from uh, all these you know uh, widget based elm style architectures um, and I was like I wonder if there's a way to to make this architecture work such that you know it fits the vision of GUI because Leptos and a bunch of the web frameworks are pure web. Um, there are ways that you could use bits and pieces of their frameworks to make a desktop app but there's so much just the way they think is built on the DOM. Um, and so what I really wanted to build was a cross-platform system that isn't built around the DOM. Um, and I have a cool little experiment that I succeeded with this week. I don't know if I'm going to go any further with it though, because I already am building a database. We're talking about building a game and you know, uh, the path of least <laughs> resistance in my brain is to pick up Leptos or some other web framework and just build a web client for this game uh, without the extra overhead of trying to build this other thing too. Um, so I'm kind of at a crossroads there uh, because you happen to, you know, we, we decided to to start making this podcast right as I played around with this experiment. So I might dump it, but if anyone actually listens to this episode and is like, wow, that sounds like a noble goal. We really should have something like that in Rust. And I too am not super thrilled with the exact landscape of UI frameworks out there in Rust. I would love to hear from you because one of the biggest things holding me back is that I feel like I'm doing a lot of these projects just kind of on my own. And, you know, that may change a little bit with, with Toggle and I working together on various aspects, but I don't want to spend Toggle's gravel runway <laughs> on, a, on a GUI project. I'd rather spend it on the actual game. So, uh, you know, for people who are interested, uh, who might actually want to contribute, if that sounds interesting, ping me. I haven't published this new experiment yet because I'm still kind of uh, experimenting with uh, how it looks to like embed controls within each other, so to speak, because um, that's a trickier second level. Um, but uh, assuming I like how it turns out, uh, I would love to have help taking it to the finish line, which obviously UI framework, there's no real finish line for, but uh, it's, it's, it's nice thinking about. I think, I think that, that sounds wonderful. I actually want to go, go a little bit deeper into that one. Um, but, but I, I just want to outline then for anyone who's listening, if you want to make a game, the first thing you do is build a database. <laughs> you build exactly. a GUI framework. So there's the, there's a, there's a great, um, <clears throat> Path, but no. Um, we can. Uh, what, what, what I would like to do. What I would like to do is, I would like to see if you can explain to me how your reactivity works, right? Because I am thinking <laughs> about this in terms audio of audio only. Great. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, but I'm wondering. Uh, look at it as an experiment, right? Let's see. Let's use. Let's use common abstractions. Um, can do you think it's possible? Do you think it's possible to explain? Yes. How it works. I can try. 
um, and we'll let people uh, tell us how successful we were. Um, so at the at the core, um, a lot of things call them signals, which is this idea that you can uh, write a value to a location and um, some other chunk of code gets fired anytime that value changes. So if you can think about it as a closure gets past a parameter, let's say that you have a signal that is a type of string. What that means is that there's actually a string being stored somewhere and you have a writer, which kind of acts similar to a channel um, that uh, allows you to write values to that location. And then anytime you write it, um, anyone who has uh, registered to receive notifications, just like a channel, but it acts more like a broadcast channel um, in a way. Um, but anyone who's reading values from that signal will get their little snippets of code fired at some point after the, the value has been written there. Like there's an async aspect to it that's not gonna immediately happen, but it will eventually happen, right? Um, and so how do you use this? Well, let's say that you know the button has a signal um, that's a string type that's its label that allows you to, um, from another chunk of code, update the button's label by writing to that signal. And, um, and likewise, the button has an on click signal, which when you click, you, you maybe at most would report like, you know, which mouse button it is. So you might get some sort of parameter right now. My example just passes a unit type to it. Um, but there's a callback that happened or a signal that fires, um, when the button gets clicked. Um, and so you're able to attach a callback to the, the buttons, you know, click event of sorts. Right. So, uh, using these things, what you can do is you can create a button that has a signal for its label and a signal for its um, um, uh, for its on click, and the signal for its on click can write a new counted value to the label signal, such that when you click on the button, that little snippet, all it does is it just says counter equals counter plus one or whatever, um, and then you know button dot set, uh, you know. Or it's not, not button. You just say uh, my label dot you know set or dot write whatever whatever the verbiage is called for the signal thing, um, the new value to, for the signal for the for the for the button label, um, and then it just all magically works. Um, what's different between this and a lot of other systems, um, which I guess I should point out that reactive systems don't necessarily have what I'm about to describe, but a lot of reactive systems, um, I think Sycamore uh, is one of them, um, uh, a framework uh, written in Rust um, that uh, actually like recalls your functions over and over based on uh, what has changed and wasn't, ha and, and does like a diff of what the resulting DOM looks like and what the uh, current DOM looks like um, so that it can kind of just do the Delta updates. Um, what's interesting with Leptosis style is that they're actually updating the DOM directly. So when you up, uh, when the, the buttons label uh, signal changes, it, the snippet that fires in the DOM literally just updates that node's label for you. So you don't actually have any diffing going on at all. Um, it just, it just lives. And these little snippets of code fire periodically. Um, and that's a really big mental model shift of how things, um, actually like work, <laughs> um, from a, from an actual, uh, framework perspective that, um, 
it's been kind of brain bending to kind of reverse engineer how it should work um, in a system where you can't just talk to the DOM because you're in cross-platform land. So you have to somehow have a barrier between um, your cross-platform widget code and what runs on the browser and what runs natively. Um, so yeah, I, I don't know if I answered your question very well or not, but well, you answered my question. A... That's for sure. But okay. I'm the, the what I'm thinking. I really want to see this thing because I'm trying to draw this kind of mental model in my head now of of how all this fits together. Now you tried to explain it to me once, um, but I'm I'm sort of like I'm trying to figure out how do you have uh, how do you how do you touch a value that then triggers an update. Do you have some kind of blocking loop in another thread? This is where if I if I could actually just show you the code, it would make a lot of sense. But since we're on an audio-only podcast, um, so essentially the browser code uh, has to transform this cross-platform widget representation into a DOM representation, right? So for a button, translates to a button node. Um, and that button thing can have a, uh, you know, uh, on event or you know on event listener added or whatever it's called um, and for the for the click event um, and so you register uh, a you know closure with the browser that is going to fire when the on click event happens um, and that closure can have state within it because it's actually an FN mute in my system. I'm not sure exactly how everything works in leptos. Um, but so I can literally have a counter that gets moved into that closure that gets incremented every time it gets called, which is kind of fun. Um, and uh, so the closure that gets spawned just needs to know how to look up that um, element in the DOM again um, so that it can modify it. That's all it has to do. Um, uh, so I'm not sure quite what the missing link in the visualization is for you because uh, that closure, you just, you know, it's a, it's a move closure. So you move the signal into the closure and now that closure is kind of just living in the JavaScript world in the browser world somewhere. Um, and, you know, once it gets called, it just activates the rust code again. And you start firing again. Right. So it's, it's really the JavaScript side that is, that is executing the, the on click event on a button. For some reason, I was thinking about this reactive system as like an isolated thing that could exist outside that wasn't dependent on the browser's event. But now I, I see that's why I kind of attached a bit of, 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 of magic to it. But then I understand. Well, so in, in the native implementation, those cross platform things are probably going to be the thing that actually persists. So in a way it does uh, the way that you're talking about. And those callbacks will actually mutate the cross-platform state. Probably. I haven't actually implemented that part in this, ex in this um, experiment yet. I've only been doing the DOM implementation so far, um, but I've separated everything into their individual crates. So I know that the separation of responsibilities is there. Um, so I'm, you know, I've, I've done the right separation I need to, to make the, the native implementation someday. Um, but I still have to have the motivation to do it someday. <laughs> so. The motivation. This is the this is the key point to to getting anything done, isn't it? Is the motivation to 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 um, to really kind of start working on something, right? Which is also why yeah. it's. I think Rust is very important to me personally because it's. When, when, when we talk about the advantages of Rust, we talk about memory safety. We talk about no use after free, and of course. For those of you who are very pedantic out there, I am talking about what you would qualify as safe Rust. Right? So we have no no use of the free, no, no data races, and all these wonderful things. Is that why I pick Rust? Not really. I pick Rust today. I love the benefits, but I pick it because it's a really fun language. 
to programming. It makes me happy to program Rust. Right? Um, Same. So even if Rust wasn't as good as it is, I still probably would program Rust, even if it had slightly less performance or some other caveat. But maybe, maybe I would have never sort of gotten into it in the first place if, if I, or, or at least stayed with it if it had some terrible performance issues, right? And and I think some of you out there might remember what the original async story of Rust was before the async await. Uh, we talked a little bit about error messages earlier, right? And and I think if you if you really wanted to have a glimpse into what the Rust before async await keyword was like, there was some pretty hairy error messages, including the types that were pretty pretty extensive because it compiles this massive state machine. And back then we had to map everything. It was like a future do this, then map to this, then map to that. And, and it wasn't it wasn't as nice to use. Um so, okay, I think, you know, before we start to round this off a little bit, is there, is there a particular crate or anything that you feel like this, this, is, this is one of those really, really magnificent crates that you use in almost all your projects, or at least you would if it was relevant? Oh, wow, that is... Um... Sorry, I just <laughs> sandbagged you with that question, right? Um, <laughs> if you have one, I would love for you to go first while I think for a moment. I would um, say flume for channels. Okay. Okay. That, that that is a really good one. That was one of the ones I was thinking of. Um, that I think that is that is really good. But the thing is, you actually introduced me to flume, so I feel like exactly. you should probably <laughs> mention this instead of me. <laughs> well, okay. So I mean, I'll I'll explain the main benefit of why would you use uh, flume. So flume is a channel library that allows you to have both. Um, uh, uh, bounded channels and unbounded channels, uh, similar to the standard library channels, except they're just a bit more clean overall to use um, in terms of how errors and stuff work. Uh, additionally, um, if I remember right, um, the standard library is multi-producer single consumer. Is that correct? Right. Um, yeah. Off the top of my head. Um, and so, and and, uh, and Flume is actually multi-producer multi-consumer, meaning you can actually clone your re your receivers as well as your senders, um, which is another benefit. The final benefit that is the biggest selling point to me is that uh, the readers and writers can both be used in both sync regular threaded code as well as async code. There's uh, there's versions for both. Um, so you can have a uh, thread that is uh, using blocking calls uh, to the channel uh, to talking to a bunch of async receivers, um, for example, or vice versa. And that flexibility uh, really helps bridge the gap between uh, threaded code and uh, async code and you can even use the same channel to do either a sync read or an async read right? yes very, very yeah cool. exactly i feel like yeah. when you introduced me to flume uh there it it didn't seem like such a well-known project i don't know i haven't looked at it these days in terms of, of like is this getting a lot of you know stars on github because that's that's how we measure quality these days is how many stars do you have on github right <laughs> Um, but it speaks to some, some kind of popularity at least. And I don't know, it wasn't a lot. As a matter of fact, it was quite confusing. When I searched for Flume, I, usually, I would get this fork of Flume instead. Like I would get some, some other version. Um, so I don't know what it looks like today, but I think that's an absolutely fantastic crate. Um, for, yeah, it absolutely for, for is. Um, the the other one that I find, I mean, it's it's used a lot, so I don't think it's very unknown. Is um, something called Slot Map, um, which 
is kind of funny because I've been writing my own version of it this past week too. <laughs> um, and I don't really want to go, we're already slightly over an hour, so I don't want to go into why was I writing my own slot map. Um, but it actually touches on the, the topic we were just at. So I'll revisit that. So slot map uh, is a way to store a, a bunch of values that don't necessarily have a good natural key, uh, some way to look them up uh, at some point in the future. But you know you're going to need to at some point in the future. With a VEC, you could look at up the values by index, you know, use size. Um, but the moment that you remove a value from the collection, all the indexes are invalidated, right? And so what slot map at least does the is ones you, that comes before the oh, one you remove or after or, or vice versa, after, whatever. Yes. Yeah. No, I'm backwards, but yes. <laughs> um, but uh, you know, with a slot map, when you push a value to it, um, it gives you a a slot ID back, and it's like an opaque type, um, but it, it includes a little bit extra information um, uh, as well that uh, protects against um, the fact that what it's doing under the hood is using a VEC, and when you remove a value, it actually just empties out that it position in the vector. Um, and so when you go and add a new value, it'll actually reuse that same position. But what it also does is it keeps a little counter so that if you try to use the same slot ID to look up um, a value, it actually tells you it doesn't exist anymore, uh, that it's already been removed because the generation, I'm putting that in quotes because it's what a lot of people call it, of that particular slot has changed since the last time you read it. So a key contains an index and a generation. Exactly. Um, and so, um, and so slot map is a wonderful library. It's very well tested. It has on safe code. Um, and, uh, and it has a couple other, uh, design choices that, um, just made me not quite want to bring in for GUI. Um, it was purely, it's a little bit heavier of a dependency when my needs were so small. Like I just needed a very simple version of this thing. Um, but then, I realized that I needed to to spin it off uh, so that I could use it in a, in both like multiple crates inside of GUI. And at that point I had the decision, do I want to publish my own or use slot map? And it was a very tough decision. That's why I'm saying that slot map is my other crate choice. So I think, yeah, I think I haven't, I haven't used slot map before, but I, this sounds a little bit sort of we're halfway there to a slab. A slab does not have generations, but if yes. you insert something at, at position 100 you're going to if you remove it you're going to have uh, an empty entry record there which of course um this this well since we're talking about this thing uh, is iterating over a slot map expensive no uh well yes depends I mean, that's how everything is, right? Data structures have pros and cons, right? Mm. Um, so iterating over a slot map that is full is the same as speed as a, as a VEC, right? But if you want to iterate over a slot map that is only 50% full, um, a lot of them are going to basically loop over the entire underlying structure and just not emit the empty slots on that iterator. Um, mm. And so technically you're going to have to read across all of the memory, um, which means that it'll be less fast than a VEC that is tightly packed of the same number of elements. Um, but in general, it should be pretty fast. And, you know, I, I don't think that the average use case that I'm envisioning for this particular usage of, of a slot map uh, will end up with um, a bunch of empty slots. Uh, usually you'll probably be you know, operating pretty close to capacity. Um, at least that's I think my a, a, theory. a slot map is also something we think of in terms of uh, 
of, of, of for, for speed of lookup, right? Because we don't have to yes. cache any keys and, you know, it's just exactly. an index lookup, right? So it's very, very fast, right? Absolutely. Yeah, no, it's, like, it's pretty pretty rare that you need to iterate over these things, I think. Uh, sorry, yeah, I think, uh, I think in, that's not And right. when you're wanting a slot map, you probably aren't going to be iterating over the whole collection. Probably. No, there obviously you are, are, you are exceptions to the rule. You're more just using but, it as a... As some random map, access. The map. Map is in the name, right? Exactly. That, right? Exactly. Um, so, okay. So I think like we, we've kind of gone over time that we've allotted for this thing. Um, yeah, I think this is a good place to wrap it up. Yeah. So do you have, any, do you have anything you want to add before we, uh, before we wrap this up? Well, we probably should have discussed how often do we think we're going to do one of these things. I... I would like with with a with a vigor and enthusiasm of a junior developer. I would like to say every day, but as a <laughs> as a, a sort of someone who's a bit jaded and, and a little bit more senior, I like to say <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I'm I think I, I mean it would be pretty cool if we could get together and do this every Thursday, right? I don't know if that's going to be reasonable, but we could at least try for that. So let's let's say that our goal will be either weekly or biweekly, and we'll kind of play it by ear um, uh, next week when we uh, meet again to uh, to figure this out. And and at that point, at that point, we should have some kind of progress report, right? We should have some kind of update. So my, maybe my, I, I I didn't actually expect us to start working together yet. No, um, no, no, I just, not on uh, that. Not on that. Okay. I, I, oh, okay. Oh, no. Okay. <laughs> I I meant more like let's let's have let let's hope that we make progress somewhere in our programming adventures throughout the week, possible or not. Not yeah. better put your nose to the grindstone kind of thing. Um, well, I mean, I think wrong. that's actually one of the my key philosophies that I would encourage everyone to live by is that you know even on the days that you're not feeling super productive about something like if you can just even get one of your little tiny tasks done sometimes that actually can be a waterfall and let you get more done that day but even if you just get one thing done that day you know that the next day you're at least one step closer to where you're trying to get to you know and that's kind of my philosophy too so i sure hope that we both have had a little bit of steps along our progress and yeah we'll have something interesting to talk about next week uh and maybe more actual like news uh in the rust uh, world a little bit too. Um, we, we've talked about how we want to kind of, you know, do a little bit of that type of stuff on this type of podcast too. Um, it won't all be about our projects. It'll be a, a little bit about the Rust ecosystem as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. Um, so on that note, we will say thank you all to all of you who's been listening and, uh, and I hope to catch up with you um, after this and look a little bit more into your reactive code because you have piqued my interest uh, after all these conversations and i uh, thank you all for who've been listening um and that's it for me thank you everyone